our uh, journey together through the New Testament book of Philippians. Boys and girls, please make sure you have your uh, children's bulletin there, bright and blue. You have your uh, own translation and a place for you to take notes and a place you can also ask questions of your parents or of myself or of uh, Pastor John Mark. And again, please make sure you put your name on those so we know who to answer when you do give us a, uh, a question. We're looking today at Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Last week we really emphasized and looked at the humility of Jesus Christ. And this week we're going to look at his exaltation. But before we get there, we kind of, one of the bad things about preaching through a letter like this is that most of y'all know this, in case you don't, these letters were actually read in one sitting to the church. I mean, Philippians is actually a sermon that Paul wrote and sent, and it was read out loud as a unit. And so when we go through it piecemeal like this, sometimes we lose the overall unity of the letter. So just to, there's a reason why he's at this point now with the exaltations. I want to I cover that very briefly, if you'll allow me. One of the big themes of Philippians is the idea of partnership, the idea of fellowship, of being together. Paul has told us we're partners together in the Holy Spirit. We're partners together in the church. And we're partners with God and his mission in the world. And so we're partners in the church, and so that means we should have unity and be one in the church. And the Philippian church was having some problems getting along, basically. There were some self-interests popping up. There were uh, selfishness popping up. There was, and it was harming the church. And so we saw from Jesus Christ himself that when we were looking at the problems of unity, Jesus Christ himself said in John chapter 17, the world will know. I'm sent from God by your unity. Not by your preaching, not by how you live missionally, not by your social justice, not by the songs you sing, by your unity, the world will know that Jesus is from God. So unity is pretty important. So Paul's trying to help them have unity. He exhorts them to humility, to look out for the interests of others, not just their own interests. And then because the Bible always does this, it never gives you just a blanket command without giving you a theological truth that empowers that command. He says, look, Jesus Christ did this to show you how to do it. And if you're united to him, he then empowers your humility. So Jesus laid aside his self-interest, took up the interests of others by going all the way to the cross. And so we too have power to lay aside our self-interests and be unified in the church. So to get to our passage today, after having seen the massive humility of Jesus Christ and being obedient even to the cross, I want to go all the way back to creation. Back at creation, God created the very first person, Adam. And when God created Adam, God entered into an agreement with Adam, what the Bible calls a covenant. We call it, theologians call it the covenant of works. This covenant was based on obedience, or works is why it's called the covenant of works. It says this, if Adam would perfectly obey God's word, he would then work and earn eternal life for himself and for all who came after him. It was God's gracious offer to Adam, and we know how that went. Adam disobeyed, and so Adam received not the blessings of the covenant, but what did he receive? He received the curses of the covenant which was instead of earning life for himself and his posterity, he earned death for himself and his posterity. He received the punishments. But God in his mercy made a second covenant, a covenant of grace. And this covenant was made not with Adam, 
This covenant was made with the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son. And that covenant basically said, if you are willing, you can become a second Adam and you can give the covenant of works another shot if you want to. And he was willing. Jesus Christ came. Jesus Christ was the second Adam. We saw last week he humbly submitted to God's law. He did take on the curse, death, and he was victorious over the grave. He came and he fulfilled that covenant of works. He earned the grace that he brings to us. His perfect obedience is what we now need to have eternal life under that covenant. Okay, why am I telling you this, right? Because that's right where we are at the end of verse 8. We have these two covenants fulfilled. The covenant of works made with Adam has been fulfilled in the life and death of Jesus Christ. The covenant of grace made with Christ has been fulfilled by his obedience in submitting to the cursed death on the cross. And so these two fulfilled covenants, what do you get when you have a covenant fulfilled? You get rewards. And so now we get to see what are Jesus' rewards from the covenant of grace. And one of those rewards is his exaltation to be the king of kings, the Lord of lords, at God's right hand forever. That's what our text is about today. Having seen the humility, we see the exaltation. So if you would, look with me, these two verses. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Um, Before we go to God's Word, let's go to His Spirit and ask for help. Oh, Lord, we thank You that You've sent us Your Word. We pray now, Lord, You would send us Your Spirit to open this text up to us. May we know more of Christ, our exalted Lord, We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we're going to see today that God exalted Jesus so that God would be glorified by the creation-wide acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord. So I want you to remember what we're going to talk about today. Kids, you can write this down in your notes. I want to give you the theme for today. It's this. Jesus' humility led to his exaltation and God's glory. And our humility can too. Remember, Paul is still trying to exhort them to humility for the sake of unity. So he's showing them, look, your humility can bring God's glory. And so we're going to see that today by Jesus Christ being crowned and worshipped as the Lord by a humbled people and how that glorifies the Father. So let's jump right in here and see God's glory in Christ the Lord's coronation. Paul starts out immediately with Christ's exaltation as king. We're seeing here after his humility, Christ says the, or Paul says the cursed death on the cross at the end of verse 8. Now he says, therefore, God has highly exalted him, placed on him this great name, given him title and authority. Christ has worked to establish his people. This is his coronation. He's being crowned as king. He's being publicly recognized now as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Oh, this is, so many movies capture this so well. It's very hard for us to see. I mean, the inauguration that happens every four to eight years of a president is really nothing to compare to the coronation of a new king. I mean, we're going to see in our lifetime, probably within the next decade, we're going to see the UK, which knows how to do it right. We're going to see them coronate a new monarch. 
And we'll see what this is like for those of us in a democracy. But in case you haven't seen one, I want to give you a picture if you've seen it. I know some of you, as soon as I say this, you're going to go to sleep. Please don't. Okay, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the very end of the last movie. Okay, a couple of you, you staying with me? Okay. <laughs> He's there as king. Gandalf the wizard puts the thing on his head. His name is, has been Strider. He's this swarthy-looking kind of almost criminal-looking guy. Strider's gone. His name is now Aragorn. He's the king of this country. The entire country, it seems like, has gathered the upper deck of this massive city. And as soon as they put that crown on him, the place just erupts with praise and shouts and adulation. Everybody's going nuts about this. That's what's happening in verse 9. Paul is actually stretching the Greek language here. He invents a word to show how lofty and exalted Christ is. He takes the regular word for exalted and he grabs the Greek prefix hyper. Did you know hyper, by the way, is Greek? He grabs the word hyper and he basically says, Christ is hyper exalted. Christ is super exalted. You can't get any more exalted than Christ is at this moment. Now, boys and girls, I tried to catch this for you so you could see this. Look with me at your verse 9. Here's what Paul's trying to say. It says this. Because Jesus humbly did all the Father asked, God then hyper-raised Jesus, giving him a name above everybody else. No one has more authority than Christ, is what, is what Paul's saying here, boys and girls. At the name of Jesus, everybody says, oh, he's the boss. He's in charge. See, the humble, suffering Jesus is gone. He has purchased his people back from death. His resurrection establishes his people. He's now crowned as Jesus Christ, the Lord. He is exalted above all others. For me personally, I want you to understand why this is important. Because so often, like, okay, thanks, Jesus is Lord. I knew that. I can answer the Christian trivia question. Thank you. When I really started to understand the gospel... When, that, when God really started to press into me that the gospel is not something that happened back then, it's not some choice I made back then, now I've got fire insurance so I can do what I want with my life, but when I really started to see the gospel affects me every day, that I live in the reality of the gospel every day, one of the things he started to do is he started to press the immensity of my own sin into my heart. I was just obsessed with the idea of sin as a freshman in college, and not the way you're thinking. So... Um, my, I remember my roommate was like, he told Nikki, because they were oh, actually old friends, he goes, I was with Sean, and he bought another book on sin, Nikki. <laughs> I was just, I was obsessed with the idea of sin, because as I started to see my own heart, the gospel I'd been taught, the Savior I knew, frankly, couldn't handle how bad I was. He wasn't big enough or strong enough. But as I started to see the reality of my own sin... This is one of the passages the Holy Spirit took me to, and I would just day in and day out be thinking to myself, have this attitude in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he exists in the form of God, does not regard equality of God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of man, being, being found in appearance, made he humble himself, become a beaten to the point of death, even death on a cross, and therefore God highly exalted him and placed on him the name above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Don't you want to say amen to that? And I started to see how big and great and huge this God was. And I, wow! So like my sin and this great God come together in his mercy and I can be free? Well, that's really cool! Can I get amen? There we go. And that's why it matters to see Jesus as high and exalted like that. Because when you start to see your own sin, 
You better have a high, exalted God because if you're honest, a little wimpy Jesus ain't good enough. The Gandhi social justice Jesus cannot handle your sins. We need the exalted Lord. And that's what Paul's trying to get them to see. He's trying to say, see, look how big this God is. See, and when we recognize that, it brings humility to us because we focus on God's glory in Christ and it strengthens our humility because we focus on Christ. We rally around His glory, not our own personal glory. We seek His worth and praise instead of trying to seek our worth and praise. And when we do that, we will have unity. Oh, there's something else really great here. There's another thing that happens at coronations. Kings are given gifts for their work in establishing their throne. So too, Christ receives rewards. We've just seen Christ is given this lofty position above all others as the reward for his humble obedience to the cross. God highly exalts him, and he is, he's established as the king of kings. And there's another reward here, and this is really great. Remember how we started about seven, eight minutes ago with Adam and the covenant of works, and then Christ and the covenant of grace. One of the rewards of the covenant of grace that Christ came to fulfill is yes, you'll be exalted above all others, but the other reward is if you save them, you get to have them. He gets his people as a special possession, his bride. We are the gift that Christ gets of the covenant of grace. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the fact that you, if you know Christ, are the reward he was working toward? I mean, of course Christ gets the reward of the lofty position and king of kings. That just makes sense. But when we read verses like in Hebrews, it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He's not just talking about the joy of being a king. He's talking about the joy of having you. He endured the cross. He gets you as his beloved bride. Have you ever thought about that? If you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are his reward for the cross. In other words, his exaltation is our exaltation. We have the blessing of knowing our Redeemer has said something to the gist of, I worked so hard to save you because you are my reward. That's how much I love you. Isn't that an amazing thought? Do you believe that? Or is even right now part of your brain going, that can't be true. Christ loves you that much. You were the reward he was striving for in all that humility in verses 6 through 8. You do realize, by the way, this is why the whole idea of a princess being rescued story is universal. It's cross-cultural and it's cross-time zones. You realize that if you have something that's absolutely ancient and absolutely cross-cultural. It's not a stereotype, it's an archetype. And that's why the archetype of the princess being rescued by someone is all over human culture. Because the princess being rescued by the knight from the dragon is the story of us being rescued by our prince and savior from the dragon of sin and death. And in the true version, the princess does get to marry the handsome prince. And we do get to live happily ever after. Because his exaltation is our exaltation. See, and it's when we recognize that fairy tale reality of the gospel that we can have unity in the church. 
Because we look at that and we never ask, oh, what? well, how can I make this better for me? How can I help my interests go forward? No, we ask, what do I make of Jesus Christ the Lord? What do I make of his exaltation? How does that affect me? Here's what I mean by that. If we do not long for and rejoice to see Jesus Christ exalted, then we must ask ourselves if we really know Christ as Savior. If we're so busy making people think highly of us, making sure they think highly of us, that our interests are taken care of, that we walk right over other Christians, just destroy unity in the church, we have to ask ourselves, am I actually born again, really wanting to exalt Christ? Or does my quest to exalt myself prove that I don't know Christ and I'm still in my sins? See, Jesus' humility led to his exaltation and to God's glory, and your humility can too. Next, we see, we see God's glory in Christ the Lord's worship. So verse 9 tells us what God did. Now verse 10 and 11 explain why God did it. Look with me at verses 10 and 11 and say this. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now we see here a posture of reverence, of of bowing down. We see here a confession of truth. Jesus Christ is Lord. Whenever you have the posture of reverence and whenever you have the truth being confessed, that, my friends, is called worship. Paul is showing the worship of Christ here by all of creation, the unabashed worship of Christ as Lord. We get to worship Christ as Lord, and he receives it. And God the Father is glorified in it. Do you think about that? You know, the doctrine of the Trinity is is hard. It's one of those ones that is just difficult. People want a proof text for that, and there's proof text for it. But the doctrine of the Trinity is also just woven into the fabric of Scripture. It just saturates every page. And this is one of those places. I mean, think about this. Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He called himself that. He was a strict, monotheistic Jew. There was only one God, the God of Israel. And in Paul's day, the Psalms were part of Jewish worship. They routinely had a regular diet of the psalms and the very last verse of the last psalm psalm 150 summing up the whole psalter says this i think we have it on the slide for you psalm 150 verse 6 says this says let everything that has breath praise the lord praise the lord and by the way if you say that last phrase praise the lord in hebrew you say hallelujah so if you ever want to know what hallelujah means it means praise the lord Anyway, back to this text. When Paul says that, or when a, when a good Jew would say that, there was no doubt they were referring to the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Moses, the God of the Old Testament, that they would say. And here is Paul in verse 11, basically taking that verse and applying it to Jesus Christ and saying one day everything is going to praise, let everything that has breath praise Jesus Christ the Lord. And then he says God the Father is glorified when that happens. See, that absolutely teaches Jesus Christ was considered by Paul and the early church to be divine because he deserves the same worship of God and God is honored by that same worship. So there must be some sort of connection there. Oh, see, we whose sins have been forgiven by Christ, we see that. We see stuff like that. Yeah, obviously Jesus is divine. 
And we worship him because of that. But we know many folks on earth do not think much of Christ. And that's one of the things that makes humility so hard. Because it's often the unredeemed before whom we have to be humble or humbled against our will sometimes, isn't it? It's often those who hate Christianity who must see our humility before they can believe. And that's hard. But one of the encouragements to humility is in this passage here. Because the day will come, one day, someday, when everybody will bow before Christ the Lord and everybody will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day, someday, everybody will know the truth. Now, this passage is not saying they're all going to become Christians. Some of them are going to be confessing that truth much to their chagrin, but they're going to be confessing it. And that gives encouragement, at least it does to me, because in an increasingly post-Christian culture, it helps to remember that those pushing so hard idolatry, immorality, even persecution in some senses, that one day they will bow and confess Christ as Lord, either in joyful worship or submissive fear. It helps us to get our eyes off of us and our suffering and say, no, this is actually about Christ, and one day he will be vindicated, and when he is vindicated, I will be vindicated. And if he's content to sit back and not be vindicated yet and to suffer a lack of worship from his creatures, I can be content to sit back and suffer as well. See, Christ's exaltation leads you to humility. It powers your humility. Because you see that it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or Gentile, whether you're a Philippian or an American. Here is the truth. Here is the simplest, most ancient confession of faith in Scripture. Jesus Christ is Lord. Every Christian must say this. This is the simplest expression of our faith. Let me repeat that. Every Christian must confess Jesus Christ is Lord. If you don't believe me, that's fine. We can look together at Romans chapter 10, verse 9, where Paul says this. He says what? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be saved. See, the question is, again, as we see the exalted Jesus, what do we make of Jesus? Do we see him as divine? Or is that Trinity thing just one of those Christian trivia things? I don't know. I guess he was a good teacher. Do we recognize Christ's sovereignty? And do we worship him as the King of kings, as the Lord of lords, to the glory of God the Father? Or is he just a mere teacher? Is he someone that helps our life go better? But we don't really submit to him as Lord worthy of our worship. See, God exalted Jesus so that God would be glorified by the creation-wide acknowledgement of Jesus Christ as Lord. Jesus' humility led to his exaltation and God's glory, and our humility can lead to God's glory as well when we submit to Christ as Lord. And finally, we see God's glory in Christ the Lord's humbled people. I just love that phrase there, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's just a great confession. But we cannot confess that. We cannot believe in Christ's coronation and his exaltation without being humbled by that truth. And if you read that and you're not humbled by it, 
you don't really believe it. Because either Jesus Christ is the exalted Lord of all creation, and so we humbly serve Him, or we are the exalted Lord of our lives and we seek to serve ourselves. Either Jesus is Lord of our lives or we are. Either Jesus Christ is exalted and worthy of worship, or we are constantly trying to get ourselves exalted and get ourselves worshiped. And that's why it takes humility to have a unified church. Because it's the humility of recognizing Jesus Christ as King of Kings that the church is unified. And it's only in that recognition, it's in the unity of God's people that the world will know that God sent Christ. And that unity is only possible when we see Jesus Christ as Lord and I am not. And therefore, I can humbly submit. You see, we bring God glory when we recognize the reality of the gospel. When we recognize how sinful and selfish we are, we see how exalted Christ is. We see how incredible his love for us must have been. That he humbled himself all the way to the death on the cross. That's how bad we were. How could we not lovingly sacrifice for each other by looking out for each other's interests instead of our own? And then we see the beauty of his exaltation, how he gets all this praise and glory and honor. And then we have the twin truth that just as much as a reward as that was in Christ's heart, receiving us as his people was just as profound a reward. He loved us that much. He wanted us that much. How can that not humble us too so we seek the interests of others, not ourselves? Because our interests have clearly been taken care of by him. And as we wrap this up, here's what I want you to ask yourself. Has all that Jesus Christ done made any real impact upon me and my life? Has it made me humble? Does it cause me to see that Christ, not me, is to be exalted and worshipped and served. You see, when we get the gospel, we realize that we've been purchased by the blood of the King of Kings. That we've been given to Him as a coronation gift to be part of His cherished bride. That humbles us to the lowest form of servant. And it exalts us to the highest joy at the same time. And in that tension, we will be humble. And from that humility, we can have a unified church that looks for the interests of others so we can be a team, a team that screams out to a watching world, God sent Jesus to rescue the world. And our unity shows it. Do you want to be part of a church like that? Then repent of your selfishness. Repent of seeking self-aggrandizement at so many opportunities. Repent of looking to your works as the basis of your value. And instead, place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. I don't care if you did it way back then. Okay, gospel today. Did you wake up this morning and say, oh, I'm placing my faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone today because Christians leak and I need the gospel every day. And if you haven't done that yet, Recognize that when you do place your faith and trust in Christ, he makes you part of his cherished bride. And you will worship him as king of kings. And you will have that humility that we all want so badly. 
In other words, if you want to have a church like that, if you want to be that humble person, repent and believe the gospel yet again. Let's pray together. Father God, we do thank you that in your great mercy you've given us your Son. And we thank you for the amazing truth that in your great love for your Son, you've given us to Him. Father, I still can't really appreciate that one. It's too, it's too big. But I thank you that your love is not limited by our understanding. Lord, we pray, though, that you would increase our understanding of how much you have loved us. That the vision of the exaltation of Christ would change us, would humble us, and would cause us to serve selflessly that the world would know you sent Christ. Lord, only you can do this. Would you change us? Would you humble us by your gospel? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.